everybody. Welcome to the Tomato Tomato podcast. It's a podcast about movies and how they're reviewed, and some people finally admitting that they actually like rom-coms. I'm Jenna, one of your usual co-hosts, and joining me is... Me, the other co-host, Chris. I... I'm not against rom-coms. It's just... I've never gone out of my way to see them, except on, like, one or two occasions. The other one being 13 going on 30. But that was because I had a celeb crush on Jennifer Garner when I was, you know, about 13. (laughs) That's true. That's valid. But, yeah, so we saw Crazy Rich Asians, and we... It honestly for me, this was the first time that I've like seen a rom com in the theaters in like a long time. Like I can't remember the last one that I saw in the theaters. I think the last one I saw was Thirteen Going on Well, 30. I know, I know. I you just said your thing. I was just saying my experience. Like I can't even remember. Like I like rom coms a lot. I will watch them on streaming all the time. But like, there's something about physically being in the theater and seeing one that is a completely different experience and is a really good one especially with something like this that is so significant and there's so much like energy and thought put into like how the aesthetic of the movie looks like it made it worthwhile to like see it in the theater it needed to be seen in a theater for multitude of reasons and obviously all those reasons people got because Crazy Rich Asians had such a small drop from the first to second weekend. And that is insane. I haven't seen anything like that before. No, like, they, yeah. Like, there are a lot of factors as to why it had such a small drop. I don't know the numbers offhand, but it's Cause super it, it impressive. Because it made, like, $36 million first weekend and, like, 25 this past weekend. I mean, it, it was what, within four days of release that they announced, hey, we're going to do the sequel. Yeah, which, like, that oh, that usually tends to happen with, like, movies that like this that kind of become, like, a cultural touchstone sort of thing. But, like, it still was nice that, like, having the film's budget be what it was, that the yeah. fact that it was, like, okay, this is already doing well enough that, like... We're, we're willing to put forth the sequel. I mean, look at... Like, The Meg did well enough, but they're not clamoring. The, like, the Meg has made so much money. That's a whole separate tangent. We were just griping about how it now has more money than Solo. I wasn't even griping, but, it, like, the fact that it's, like, two very distinct things. It's, like, they both did well. Yeah. And it's, like, we're going to greenlight Crazy Rich Asians, but too. But also, The Meg has a 46% rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. But that hasn't stopped... Universal from making a shit ton of Transformers movies. I guess. But, like, yeah, that's a whole separate discussion. But, no, like, it makes sense to greenlight a sequel for this since it's part of a trilogy and, like, you yeah. have... Yeah, if you did, it's it's adapted from a series of novels. And this is the first one and there's two more to go with. If you're listening to this episode, you probably know that already. But, yeah, it, like... I, I adored this movie. I was very pleasantly surprised by a lot of what this movie was. And and yeah. we should say, like, this is from the perspective of two, two white, white people. people. <laughs> two, two white people who are kind of, like, looking in at this, this like you said, a cultural touchstone for a, 
a specific group of people. Well, and it's also just like, but n- I'm I'm willing. Like I love the opportunity to be able to support diverse stories because, like, again, it's the thing of like I I normally wouldn't go see a rom com in theaters, but I went to see this one because I knew the significance of it and I knew that like it was doing something different and it was making these positive steps in terms of representation and that matters more to me than like any white rom-com or anything because we've seen those they're a dime a dozen yeah like granted this one does touch on some of the tropes but we'll get into that later it's it's a very specific cultural thing but with universal emotions and experiences exactly well and like there's almost like people have been comparing it to kind of black panther because it's the same sort of like the, the almost all of the cast is the from this part of the world and all of that sort of thing but this almost has a different significance than black panther with like having it be somewhat more rooted in reality cuz like it's more uh, yeah. it's accessible that way yeah, i think yeah it's it's less like wakanda is this fictional place and yes <laughs> it reflects the culture to an extent but it's also its own thing like everyone can be rachel in the movie exactly Every, yeah like that is also part of it because like you don't really have someone in black panther other than like martin freeman's character there's and, no audience proxy and like he's only the audience proxy for like a small part of the movie but yeah. like it's nice to kind of have an audience proxy throughout the whole movie and to have it be this this like world that yes it's a little f- fake and yes people have griped about how like this is not representative of the whole asian community which obviously it's not like that's this okay is just, this is just one this is just one story one, one story of a larger piece of the pie and i'm sure the point is, is to this be is, able to. This is this is kicking down the door to then be yeah. able to go in and tell those other stories. Yeah, this is getting the ball rolling to to open up the, the door and more metaphors to have more Asian representation. Just in general. In, in media. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you look at the Rotten Tomatoes page for this movie, it is certified fresh at ninety three percent. Um, there are 197 reviews, 184 are fresh, and 13 are rotten. The critic consensus is, with a terrific cast and a surfeit of visual razzle-dazzle, cr- Crazy Rich Asians takes a satisfying step forward for screen representation while deftly drawing inspiration from the classic and still effective rom-com formula. Yeah. Um, the audience score, 90% liked it, mm-hmm. average rating 4.5 out of 5, and I'm surprised by this at how small the user rating is. It's, uh, just short of 5,000. Well, like, let me look at another thing for a frame of reference. Yeah, like, let okay. me, let me look so, at another recent release. Like, so the Meg has the an Meg. audience score of 54% and it only has 3,714 user ratings. Uh, the user ratings don't matter. Like, but I was surprised at how, how small of a number that, but then I'm comparing it to other recent releases like Black Klansman has well, a little also, over 3,700. Uh, thousands or thirty-seven. Th- yeah, thirty-seven. Fallout has ten thousand. So yeah, it's so it seems to be the norm for that kind of. It's kind of like I don't know. There's probably but then there's again, probably math of that of like out of this box office gross, this number of people are gonna go and like. But then again, it's like it's all pointless. 
It's all pointless because user ratings, the only user ratings that the studio worries about is ticket sales. Yeah, exactly. That's it. It's the whole thing that we've talked about with with Solo where it was like Solo had an absurd amount of audience score ratings before the movie even came out. And it was like categorically there was no way that everyone who had seen it at the premiere and at test screenings had gone on to IMDb and voted. So it's all just like arbitrary to begin with. But even then, a 90% audience score is still it's kind of like the the cinema score sort of thing yeah, of like how they did this people. meet your uh, your expectations and so like ninety percent is pretty fair I would say mm-hmm. like that makes sense I would say so yeah it like people really seem to be enjoying this movie and really seem to be resonating with it and that makes me happy I love that we're kind of in. There's probably this whole discussion to be had about, like, the rebirth of the rom-com and, like, how it's kind of, like, comfort food that we all need right now. I think the rom-com needed this rebirth, but in a complete different contextual way of having a very specific cultural background and this kind of grounding i also just mean just in general because like over the course of the summer there's been like a bunch of netflix rom-coms that have done really well and like other like there's just kind of people are are kind of writing think pieces about like rom-coms are coming back and they're like more relevant than ever and it is kind of like everyone needs this comfort food but also when you like kind of add in the opportunity to be able to like tell diverse stories and get more diverse kind of rom-coms out there then it really matters well then that gets into like why did it need to come back why did it die i think that was because of it was the same old bullshit it was homogenized white stuff but like you i also think there's an argument to be made about like the political point in time it's the same argument that people made of like why like this is us is so popular and why like they're all the like tv game shows have come back on prime time is because like we need escapism and we need comfort food that's kind of like very low strings attached and And then really and then you could just say the basic uh, the studio executive answer is like this is easy cheap content to create that's also true yeah it's like it's kind of a it's a nice thing i would not be like i would not be mad if just studios are now racing to like capitalize on crazy rich asians and just keep making like are, diverse rom-coms there are tons of studio executives sending out their interns to bookstores and like find me there the next was, crazy so rich asians there was a show that was greenlit on abc that's supposed to be like about all of these like indigenous hawaiian like a, a family of indigenous hawaiians mm-hmm. and it literally got greenlit the day after crazy rich asians came out in theaters and they had used it and like mentioned that in their pitch nice. and then that was how abc was like yep we're in because like just the representation of it all and all of that and so then, i'm like this is a good this, thing this, this is, is like- yeah i just hope that other studios and content producers follow suit but yeah. in the right way yeah. like they take away the right lessons from this because they're we've seen it over and over again where studios try to replicate the success of others and mm-hmm. fall in their faces mm-hmm. but like this feels like the formula to make this work is so unique just for crazy rich asians but i'm i'm curious to see what it looks like when people try to replicate it it's basically just putting diverse voices in front of and behind the camera well it's like you were telling me the whole story of how so 
I'm gonna put a spoiler wall. Like it's a rom. It's a know. rom-com. You're, you you yeah. can you can listen to this without having seen it. It might affect your enjoyment of the film a little bit. You still will really enjoy the yeah. film either way. So I'm going right. This into, isn't this isn't like sixth yeah. sense, sense level plot twist or anything. I'm just going right into a third act spoiler yeah. of where Nick, the charming guy. Uh, he he has done the stereotypical rom-com trope of chasing his lady love at the airport on the plane and it, who who was it that said don't do that so, it, it was the studio who said so john chu had a whole thing where the the scene was initially staged that like oh. she sits down in her chair at the airplane and then like Nick puts down a newspaper and he he had the seat like right next to her but instead he was like that's not kinetic enough that's really like stagnant and boring and so then instead he had it where it was like okay you need to run into the plane and like be talking to her as you're moving about the aisles and so they he basically improved it and improved like what he was gonna say yeah. and do and the end result is so fucking charming. And, it's and, ridiculous. And, and so the whole point of like me bringing that up is because yeah. like they were like, well, why did you do that? It's a whole trope. And it's like, yeah, that was like in a test screening that someone was like, I, I've seen that proposal before. And then there like, were all these like Asian college students in the back who were like, fuck you. We haven't seen this before because they haven't seen themselves in that scene. It's always been, you know, yeah, it's always been the McConaughey's and Heigl's doing yeah. it. Nigel. Oh God. Um, but yeah, like I'll link to the Vulture article about that whole story because it's honestly amazing. But like, yeah, it that just that level of like we're not gonna we're gonna do something that kind of breaks the mold while still kind of playing on familiar tropes. Like it's old it's old hat to someone like me, a white dude. But, but it's like, it's but, but also the way that that proposal scene is executed, it's so charming it and is. different and has all this like life to it that isn't really like I, I was so much more invested than I am in like the normal third act proposal it in was, a rom com. That whole scene was so Genuine? earnest and yeah. charming. Exactly. Henry Golding who this is his first acting gig he was thank you to the accountant who discovered him and was like hey you should look at him because he's kind of perfect he was a bbc tv host before this and you could tell because he's charming as fuck Lord, I this want, whole cast I adore. This cast is amazing, but like Henry Golding in particular, I'll just talk about him now because we'll talk about everyone else as the episode goes on. But like, they need to keep him on retainer because he is amazing, and like just the fact that this is his acting debut and he like nails it, I'm I'm just so impressed by. Yeah. But yeah. So, so which review do we want to dive into? Let's start with Forbes. Yeah. Because it's the most critical of the three reviews so, this, so if you're if you're a new listener and you don't know the format of our show what shame we do, on you be nice what we do is we look at the rotten tomatoes page for a, for the movie that we're going to cover and we pick two reviews that go against our opinion and one review that conforms to it so just so we don't have that echo chamber yeah so in this case we picked Two reviews that were classified as rotten, which I say classified as rotten because honestly, the other rotten review is more positive than negative. It just was like, it, it boils down to the thing we've talked about before of like, did Rotten Tomatoes classify it this way or did, like, I don't know, it can be interpreted either way. But so we have two rotten reviews, which are more negative, and one fresh review, which is positive. I didn't even find the fresh review f- through Rotten Tomatoes, but I can get to that 
like diatribe when we actually get to that review. So just to start out, here is the Forbes, the Forbes review from Scott Mendelson. From Scott Mendelson, so a white dude, like so, not to. Also, Scott, can you please change your icon? You look so creepy, dude. I, know. I didn't want to nice. mention that, but I'm like every I feel time like I see it, even ta- every time I see it on Twitter, it's like, come on, man. Could you try to not look like Pennywise or something? Anyways, the review... Um, the title is Crazy Rich Asians is a Disappointingly Generic Rom-Com. So, for all its good intentions and potential value as a studio game changer, uh, Crazy Rich Asians is frustratingly run-of-the-mill in its storytelling and overly enraptured with the second word in its title. As a glorified tourist brochure showing us upper-class Singapore, it will show you the sights and make you very hungry for local cuisine. But if you're not someone who enjoys the mere sight of ridiculously wealthy people enjoying their mostly inherited extravagance, the John M. Chu-directed adaptation of Kevin Wan's novel is often a chore in, uh, for its middle 75 minutes or so. On top of that, its core romantic pairings is one rooted in overt dishonesty and inexplicable obliviousness. Everything he just said was not correct. He... So he... Yeah, he's wrong. He is viewing it as just a movie and not... Like, he... He's viewing it as, like... Just a rom-com. Yeah. And not the significance of the representation of it all. I also... I'm, like... The, the the pairing is rooted in overt dishonesty is, like, I, that particularly, I'm like, why, though? Because, like, yes, there's the whole rom-com trope of, like, oh, I lied to you, but blah, blah, blah. Like, this isn't necessarily rooted in lies. It is, like, the, the way that they explain away why Nick is hiding how wealthy he is and, like, what his family situation is, is it makes sense within the world of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a more relatable excuse than, like, what you yeah. would normally have. Like, it's it's totally justifiable to be like, yeah, I didn't want to flaunt it. I just kind of was living as is. Yeah. And it's not like once Rachel's character finds out that she leaves him, she's no. like, okay, I'll roll with this. Well, she also kind of, like, she underestimates, sort of. Which, yeah. But that, that like... That makes sense. That's that's the whole catalyst of the movie, and that totally is like, I don't know. It's not a a deal breaker to no. have that be what drives the plot. Because again, it's the thing of like you have an audience proxy, and you have like this character, this kind of like every woman character, but who was also so specifically like a representation of one of the Asian American sort of experiences. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Just like it, it's it's relatable in this it world is. that's absolutely ridiculous to where like I'm willing to overlook a bit of like plot force if yeah. it just leads us into the rest of the movie. And as for his, so I said this after leaving, Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just, because he says glorified tourist brochure for Singapore. I, I predict that Singapore in that area will have a spike in (laughs) tourism after this. I I hope so because. It's gorgeous. It is super gorgeous. Now, granted, we're only saying like probably the good parts i'm not saying that there's like of course there's that's the same thing with like a lot of movies that are set in different countries is like there's always the argument people make of like you're overlooking like the crappier parts of but like it's like yes that's true and yes that's absolutely valid and and it's and it's not like yeah it's not pushing it aside or ignoring it it's just it it's 
having Singapore as the backdrop for all of this and yeah. the kind of the surrounding islands and yeah. everything, it's refreshing because I'm so fucking sick of rom-coms being set in. We're in Manhattan in yeah. our loft, but I'm only an intern, but I can afford this $200,000 a month. Or like Toronto or like, yeah, yeah I'm, I, it, it gets tired. It, it, it gets kind of contrived. And that, that's also part of like why rom-coms seemed so stale is like, yeah, the, the Singapore is almost like its own character in it all. And it, it is like, yes, it's exoticized a little bit, but like it's presented in this way that still, but we're also seeing it through the, the context and lens of like Nick and yeah. his worlds. And Yeah. So, like, I don't know, I, like, Scott Mendelson clearly just is kind of, I don't know, he has kind of, like, an axe to grind. Because, like, the whole thing up above it is, like, talking about, like, what's at stake for the movie, and it's kind of, like, the Asian representation of it all, and the whole Netflix deal of it all. So, if you don't know already, originally, um, they, this could have gone to Netflix, but the people behind this movie understood the significance and importance of putting this in theaters. Netflix Netflix was ready to give them the whole trilogy completely greenlit and like as a series. Yeah. And but then the only like crux would have been it's only released on Netflix and not on theaters. And I if you've listened to past episodes you've heard me gripe about Netflix and <laughs> right. Yeah. Um but it it, it it's it's worked. It's paid off for them to put it in theaters because people went in droves to see it, and they're still going to see it. Um, Mendelssohn also says, from the very start, it is unlikely that this educated, independent, and take-charge professor of economics wouldn't at least Google this guy at some point in their relationship. Moreover, it is beyond unlikely that no one from her circle of friends, presuming she has one, would inform her that she's banging the Singaporean equivalent of Prince Harry. But really, who who in New York or the States is familiar with... And if, if, it, it's plot force. I'm okay with looking past it. Like It's, it's, a rom-com it's such a thing. rom-com thing, but it's fine. Like, I don't know. And it's not like there's anything to that would make Nick suspect of, like, hey, he, like, Rachel would talk to her friends, like, hey, I think Nick's some Singaporean prince. Mm-hmm. What should I do? Yeah. There's... An, it's it's just plot force. We yeah. don't need to spend well, time. Well, because Mendelssohn says in a better film, this would merely be a joshing plot hole along the lines of, "Gee, why didn't Frodo and Sam ride the eagles to Mount Doom?" Oh but my the god! The general thrust of the movie is Rachel being shocked at her boyfriend's super oh wealth. If you don't buy that, a Rachel wouldn't have figured it out through pre-second date detective work, and b Nick isn't a jerk for not informing her at least before she gets sandbagged by his giant extended family. It puts a wrinkle in the narrative. It's not a Crimson Peak level problem. It's a gothic romance. Even even though they're planning to murder her, but it is vexing. Okay, so the Eagles didn't <laughs> want to get involved because they don't like getting mixed up in elf and human affairs. They like to stay in their own goddamn lane. Gandalf summoned them to help him to save him, and the Eagles were fine with that. It's only until the very end that the Eagles realized that they needed to get involved because the stake of Middle Earth uh, was there, and then they can come in and they uh, dispatched the ring rates and their dragon things 
anyway. <laughs> just in case we were too off-brand for talking about a rom-com, we just kind of got back on course. I just, like, that whole stupid thing, when the eels... Because there's good reasons. There's canonical reasons, motherfucker. <laughs> but, yeah, so then Mendelssohn goes on to say that, like, it, this is a good hour or so of wealth porn. From the moment Rachel arrives at the big family gathering, Crazy Rich Asians becomes all about the rich. We get an incredibly lengthy party sequence, which is merely a showcase for seeing ridiculously wealthy folks enjoying the fruits of their, again, mostly inherited wealth. This leads to a bachelor party and a bachelorette party with much of the same function. It is not an offensive so much as it is boring. It becomes a Fifty Shades sequel without the kink. No. No. It... It's... It's this, like, larger-than-life sort of thing. It is. And I think this scene that exemplifies the larger-than-life comedic side of this is... A Jimmy Yang? Jimmy Yang. Jimmy O. Yang. His character in the film is, he is a cousin to Nick. Yeah. He's like, or like a friend or he's, something. He's some... He's like, they, they don't like him because he's very tacky as a person. <laughs> he, I don't even want to say he's the black sheep. He's like the gold sheep of the family who, basically he throws this ex- ex- exuberant, extravagant party on a container ship, this large cargo ship, and he's launching rockets off the boat into the ocean. He has they're, oh, and they're in like um, international, international waters. waters. Like it's so ridiculous, and it's played for laughs, and it works in this way to kind because then like Nick and his friend that is getting married, then like leave there and just go like chill out on like a coast somewhere and it's like they they kind of acknowledge like this is ridiculous we didn't need this much effort yeah like it's it's not boring i don't know john ju balances the humor and the heart of it all yeah and and it allows it to get kind of this like larger than life sort of thing like I Which know. I don't see why it can't be larger than life because and fun like so that. Because there's so many fucking white rom-coms where it's like, look how wealthy, like, even like period pieces and stuff where it's all just about like flaunting the wealth and if doing whatever. Get, if we can get silly fucking by the numbers comedies yeah. from like Seth Rogen and his group, then why can't we have this? Exactly. Why can't this group of people, Asians, have the ridiculous comedies too? And it's not even a ridiculous comedy. It's just there's the moments of like lavishness but that's the whole point is that it's and it's genuine comedy it's not based off of like dick jokes and we or like laughing at each other and it's like hey we're all friends and we're just dicking around and we happen to film it it's like no they're genuinely funny it's like like the characters here are great yeah then Mendelssohn goes on to say to be fair this stuff eventually dies down and we get some real um drama um Eleanor uses dumplings as a rhetorical weapon while offering solid arguments about why Rachel, a Chinese-American immigrant raised by a single mother and with a thriving career of her own, might not be the best match for her son. Nonetheless, it's humorous to see Eleanor decry Rachel as this comparative free spirit who follows her passions. It's nothing. It's not like she's an aspiring actress or ran away to join the circus. She's a respected economics professor at a major American university. Cultural differences notwithstanding, Rachel is the definition of a catch. But see, like, that whole conflict makes sense within the context of the movie and when you see... Because, like, so apparently the books kind of touch on more of the, like, 
sexism and misogyny and especially like the the interpersonal yeah. relationship issues that can exist within the whole like Singapore world of it all and like how the women aren't necessarily treated in the best way and so like it does make sense that it's like oh Rachel has like too much going for herself already and then it's very much a, a cultural thing of where typically in Asian culture, Asian families, it's for uh, like the greater good, but for the, for the whole, mm-hmm. not just yourself. Yeah. And it, then you can get into the small like the sexism of it yeah. all. And it, it's because you have this family that is led by matriarchs. Yeah. Well, and like Michelle Yeoh's character says at one point, like that following your dreams is a luxury, like yeah. in their culture, which like that it's kind of a it's it's a thing that exists in like like i said like period pieces almost of like the prince has to succeed his father he can't like go off and do whatever he wants but like it it's an interesting catalyst and it is like you said having the matriarchy of it all and like not necessarily like you don't see nick's father ever i think he's like away on business the whole time yeah so then the focus is all just about the women which is this really refreshing sort of thing yeah because it doesn't like weigh down which the men of it all props to john chu for his directing and i mean michelle Yeoh doesn't need directing she's amazing oh my um, god and then so kind of at the end of Mendelssohn's review he says um can uh, but that doesn't mean Scott Mendelssohn uh movie critic cannot express his deep disappointments and wish that it was a better movie come what may there is no need to grade it on a curve which is wrong there needs to be a curve for well, this and I don't no, know not I... even a curve just like just skew your perspective a little and, and not being overly critical because, like, just for the sake of being critical. And it's a rom-com. Expect the tropes, kind of. <sighs> I don't know. It. So w- which one do we want to go to next? I'm, I don't know. I just was trying to focus on Mendelssohn a little bit more because, yeah. Like, he does say he hopes it makes a lot of money because of the demographic representation and to show the value of the Hollywood romantic comedy, but... It, like, I don't know. I I just think he's being a little too harsh, which, like, yeah, sure, the argument is, like, well, all, like, you, you shouldn't just, I don't know, change the grade or change the classifications just because of the positive representation. But also, like you said, it's a rom-com. It, the stakes aren't as high. Yeah. But they also, I don't know. It's just, like, Mendelssohn is... It's just the white guy perspective. It is. Of, like, I don't necessarily, like, I don't know. And we totally get the opposite perspective from Slate. Yes, okay. Um, this is uh, from Slate, by reviewed by Inku Kang. Kang, I... I think. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, so I, I specifically, I stumbled on a Twitter thread after we saw the movie that was just asian-american journalists writing about this movie and i picked our positive review from there because i'm like rotten tomatoes as i've said before on like our black panther episode and stuff it does a horrible job of showing you the diversity of the critics that are reviewing a movie positively or negatively so i don't even know if this review technically falls under the rotten tomato spectrum but like it's still one i wanted to highlight and it's an overwhelmingly positive one and that matters more than like 
like sifting through all of the white opinions that were positive. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this I hadn't realized um, in the review. It, they say, you might have heard that Crazy Rich Asians is the first major release by a studio about Asian Americans in a quarter century. Mm-hmm. Its predecessor is 1993's The Joy Luck Club. The film's arrival is undeniably momentous, but it's nearly as vital that Crazy Rich is a romantic comedy, a genre that relies on uh, charisma above all else. The film's stereotype-busting approach is multifarious. Well, because what she says in the paragraph before then is that like Asian Americans aren't necessarily stereotyped as charming. There's always like the trope of like Asian American men are often viewed as asexual and less attractive, and Asian women are fetishized for being docile and submissive and abusive and ab- obsessive when they become mothers. So yeah, it like it is kind of this trope defying thing to have all of these characters that are Asian have the nuance that like white audiences and white characters are always given. But also and just look at who the people are in charge of that it's it's white people who have no understanding or a base level stereotypical understanding and approach to asian culture like like you were saying when we got out of the movie that and part of it is because this is based on a book but like the the supporting characters are so fleshed out in a way that you don't normally get in this sort of setting because i know you you like had a lot of thoughts about that yeah like when in the handful of rom-coms i've seen the supporting cast is kind of just there they're to service one purpose like there's always the guy has his best friend who's like no man or whatever and then you have the the best friend who's usually judy greer who's usually judy greer (laughs) and in this case the judy greer characters are fleshed out they have their own storyline yeah judy greer is just there to be there (laughs) sorry judy like i love you but like there's no it's very one-dimensional you're always the best friends and like these characters all represent different things and all have different personalities in a way like like we said they're based off of book characters so of course there's going to be that they're more fleshed out depth but at the same time it's it's so refreshing to see the supporting cast like just genuinely entertaining and having more Mm -hmm. to them because, yeah, like like we were saying, like, Jimmy O. Yang's character, he's, like, even the one of the most, like, one of the least dimensional characters, and he's still kind of, you get what they're going for with him. And, like, Ronnie Chang's character, and, like... Yeah. Yeah. Because usually it's, like, the guy friend uh-huh. in the rom-coms who's, like, the comedic relief. Mm-hmm. But in this one, everyone's funny. Everyone, even if it's just one line, mm-hmm. everyone has a moment. And some are obviously playing more of the comedy than others, like Aquafina's character and Ken Jong's character and all of that. But like you, you, you do get. The... But you get different levels. Like Nick and Rachel totally have moments of like comedy, but the, but it's, it's not... a different kind. It's yeah. charming and exactly. earnest, and yeah, it and it helps me buy into them as like this real couple, yeah. this tangible thing. Like this review says. Um, 
Kevin Kwan, himself a member of Singaporean aristocracy, suffused his Crazy Rich trilogy with Gabby Caddy name-dropping secret whispering intimacy. Director John M. Chu's adaptation, written by Adele Lim and Peter Chirelli, largely forgoes Kwan's designer label obsession to tell a trans-Pacific love story whose charms are distinctly American. Emotionally layered, culturally specific, and frequently hilarious, Crazy Rich is a transportive delight with food montages to die for and a wedding processional so exquisite I start to cry at its sheer beauty that alone like the wedding scene is worth the price of admission for a ticket because like it is visually stunning like you normally never like usually typical white bread rom-coms like we're gonna be at this big church in the middle of new york boring but then like this one was just presented it makes an effort and it was so intimate and like the sound cuts out for like a little bit that was such a brilliant fucking choice. <laughs> like, I loved when the music so... cuts. It's all I always admire movies when they make the decision to not have any music. Yeah, or, or sound. Because it's yeah. such a s- strong choice and smart choice that I don't think enough movies yeah. can make. Yeah, like the like even just thinking about the wedding scene now, I'm just like getting goosebumps because like the way that it's executed is so stunning, and like just. It's just, it's extravagant, but it's in this way that's really, like, impactful and interesting. Mm-hmm. And, like, I've, se- I've, heard, I've seen so many people online who were, like, from that point on, they were just, like, weeping for the rest of the movie mm-hmm. because it's just, like, so many emotions. But, um, yeah. To satisfy a rom-com just needs its emotional beats to land, and John, John Chu uh, hits most of his marks. And I have to, another thing that we've talked about, like, the talent in front of the camera mm-hmm. being represented John Shu yeah. is he under he he's part of that world that culture yeah there needs to be more of that behind the camera too mm-hmm. um because he understands it and yeah. he gets it yeah well and okay so the paragraph before that I think kind of summarizes what we were just talking about it, it's here in a single pa- package are characters of Asian descent as both relatable and exotic um, the Ox- Oxbridge educated. Um, people of Singapore's upper crest that Nick hails from especially offer an unexpected mix of the familiar and foreign shades of Downton Abbey among tropical foliage and spaceship resembling skyscrapers. That's exactly what it is. Is It's like you're presenting this kind of like trope that white people are used to seeing themselves in and they can identify those sort of tropes at, like and those sort of power structures but it's in a completely different setting and a completely different cast. I'm super slow but I'm just now realizing the the opening scenes uh-huh. importance because Nick uh-huh. he 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 does have a British accent yeah. not for the movie yeah. and I'm just really, like the opening scene is when you see a younger Nick and they're in London's yeah. like oh yeah that's they needed that partly to explain well, why he has also, the accent the, that opening scene is so fucking effective it is it sets the tone that's of also Nick's the way. only white people in the entire goddamn movie yeah. Like, is is basically Michelle Yeoh's character. Like, they're all coming in and they're, like, be, they're rained on because it's pouring outside and they're trying to get a room at this fancy hotel and the white staff is like, oh, they're there trying. must be a mistake. Like, they're trying to turn them away. And so then Michelle Yeoh goes out in a telephone booth and calls her husband and then comes back and is like, we own this hotel now. Yeah. And, like, it's such a subtle thing, but it, like, just... The fact that it's, like, let's address kind of the racism of it all, like, in that yeah. flashback and then just make the rest of the movie movie just about like the different cultural clashes within Mm -hmm. the asian community was an interesting choice like that opening scene sets so much of the tone of the racism 
that they experience the classism they experience yeah the the, the wealth the sexism. that they the sexism the wealth that they have and where nick's accent comes from <laughs> i love how you're like that's that's what you're just kind of drawing on it um, hadn't dawned on me until now <laughs> But yeah, it says much of the tension between Rachel and her potential mother-in-law has to do with Rachel's Americanness. Crazy Rich's most Asian-American element might be its simultaneous skepticism of and pride in the U.S. To goad his younger children into finishing their food, Ken Jong's character chides the children, there are a lot of children starving in America. That got like the biggest laugh it's it. in our mostly white audience that saw this movie <laughs> on a Thursday morning. Because yep. it was just like, yeah, it... Like, yeah, the way that it kind of just approaches America and talks about America was something that, like, viewers could identify with, even if they weren't necessarily... But, like, but at the same time, like, you get those little jokes that are kind of relevant regardless, but then you get the Asian-American experience of it all that's so uniquely Rachel and isn't all-encompassing of everyone's experience, but it's like, that's okay. You're still just kind of, like, showing people what that experience looks like in a way that most modern films aren't going to show. Yeah. It, like... Um, uh, let's see. This had a section that Rachel is ultimately able to find in the hard scrabble existence and aspirational success that she and her single mother eked out. A fight for survival, both widespread and remarkable, feels like a triumph not only for our protagonist, but for the affirmation of Asian-American identity. Um, what's this she got? Uh, Crazy Rich Asians Americanness also becomes its greatest area of niggling critique the film's agog celebration of wealth and access uh, necessity for its Cinderella-like structure is an unnuanced departure from Quan's portrait of his native land which is quite attuned to the deeply ingrained sexism, classism and ethnic discrimination within Singapore you can hardly detect the ethnic and religious diversity of the actual city-state which boasts four official languages, Asian, Malay, Mandarin and Tamil yeah, which like that is totally valid and like that is the biggest criticism of this movie is like it's not this all-encompassing thing which is like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here as a white person and say that that's fine but also like because it's something it, we're so unfamiliar with yeah. that we have no idea but, but it's this also, is opening the conversation and the door to it's, learning it's more. not something I ever would have even thought about if I hadn't like yeah. if, if this movie didn't exist I wouldn't be sitting here wondering about like the class and ethnic differences of all of the different cultures of Singapore I, d- I wouldn't expect or want something like that from this movie i don't know i don't know there's hints of it there like we said but like yeah like i don't want nick to sit down with rachel and kind of like let me mansplain you jazz kind of thing (laughs) i don't need that kind of scene but there is stuff where like there's hints of it there people ask rachel is like oh do you know this language no i only know like mandarin yeah it's like there's background stuff like that well and and just like the the the, like i said like the sexism stuff and whatever like it's there and there's room for it in the sequels if they choose to kind of have that play a larger part and like i said it's just kind of opening up the discussion in a way that like like i was saying like black panther doesn't necessarily open a discussion like it does but in a different more like heightened sort of way whereas this is very much like you're looking at a portrait of this part of the world and it's making you think about like what that part of the world actually is all around yeah they both touch upon it in different ways like the whole in black panther it's like killmonger's whole thing is like 
our people are out there dying yeah. and yeah. everything. It's like it's but part it's still of the like plot through this heightened. Discussion. Yeah, it's through a heightened way. Yeah, but sometimes that's how it needs to be introduced to general audiences. Yeah. Otherwise, like, whoa, this is too real for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't need this. Well, and I honestly think that the stuff with Astrid and her husband is also like a, the, this movie's chance to get really real and like because yeah. like this review argues that that storyline is meant to serve as a mirror image for Rachel and Nick's relationships but it's too underdeveloped for that sim- symmetry to resonate I I wanted a little bit more of them you barely see um Gemma Chan's uh-huh. uh, husband yeah and we barely get to know her family. This is this would have been the one benefit of having it as a show is we could have got more. I I was fine with it in the movie context. I thought that the way that like their storyline was executed through all of these little things was kind of interesting. I liked that like Astrid gets like she's kind of more willing to sort of uh, confront that flaw in her relationship after she's seeing like what rachel is going through yeah like they're just a the female solidarity of all of that and like the bechdel test out of all of that and also just like i don't know her storyline i I wanted more of it but i still think what we got was really like interesting to watch oh totally it was other i think any kind of lesser filmmaker would have gone like the gary marshall route of having all these separate vignettes yeah. and we just cut back and forth between like if, if this five wasn't based groups. on an existing source material that's totally how this would have been approached. it would have been structured like a gary be, marshall yeah. rom-com but like having it all be this like interwoven sort of thing was interesting but yeah. yeah like the final line of this review says crazy rich asians isn't really about crazy rich asians anyway so much as it's one american who gains a greater appreciation of where she comes from it's a great romance but it's most powerful as a story of her love within herself which that is is exactly like that just nails it and like just i'm i'm glad that like people are able to identify with that aspect and like yeah yeah. it that was what resonated with me the most and i think that's what makes it a super universal movie even as it's such a specific point of view in a specific culture is it's like if you're the average rom-com viewer and you're watching this movie like the whole sort of self-empowerment and like i love myself first sort of thing yeah. is a really resonant thing so uh, and now yeah. we're on to the village voice a, so, a review from alana muhammad so this review was classified as rotten i when i skimmed over it the other day it did not seem super rotten to well it's me. one of those things we've talked about several yeah. times on this podcast yeah. where the metrics on rotten tomatoes are very <laughs> if you give it three out of five yeah that could be rotten who knows yeah like i i but i still wanted to include this review because yeah. i like kind of what it has to say um so it says crazy rich asians is the latest non-white rom-com that basks in and subverts old cliches um romantic comedies have resurfaced in critical consensus consciousness largely thanks to asian creators and despite steady production by black creators for recent examples of the genre i think kamel nanjiani's the big sick and zuzan zari's masters of none mindy keeling's the mindy project asians in america have gravitated toward that genre partly to bask in its flight of fancy and desire quietly to challenge stereotypes of a submissive homogenous group of robotic workers nowhere has there been more apparent in the anticipation of john m choose crazy rich asians and th- like okay so we did get the big sick mm-hmm. which 
But that, it's like, it's such a uniquely, it's so uniquely Kumail's story. And it's very much a story that's rooted in reality in a way that, like, I almost don't put it, like, yes, it is technically a rom-com, but it's almost a completely different category than, like, these movies. Because it's one very specific story being told. And it does involve a lot of those cultural aspects. Of, it does like, absolutely of his Pakistani heritage yeah. and culture, and yeah. But it's done in a different way because than... it, it it's also a story that Kamel lived through. It's like something that he experienced, yeah. and then now he's like retelling a sort of version of it. Your girlfriend going through this life or death situation is is not... is is not as universal as like. Well, like, it, but it's trope. also a completely different because it's more the like Judd Apatow kind of rom com than it is a sort of like yeah. this is more the more like I don't know how to describe it, but just the more the rom com style that we had like ten years ago. Yeah. Of just the kind of more I don't know. It's not generic's not the right word, but more cinematic sort of yeah. and less trying to bask in the realism of it all. But, like, so this review says, if romantic comedies traffic in romantic um, optimism, then Crazy Rich Asians hits all the right notes, which is exactly what I said. Like, uh, it's the optimism of it all and the, like, escapism of it all. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is planted firmly in the realm of women and beauty. The obvious difference between the characters of Crazy Rich Asians and the characters of previous Asian-led films is the former's immense wealth. By that standard, Boo's Rachel is not pretty nor tall, nor well-dressed enough to keep up with next life, necessitating a beloved, though sadistic, sadistic rom-com staple, The Makeover. The opulence of the clothes and jewelry begins to take on a quality of an advertisement of what and for whom is up for debate, but these images are too aware of the ones that have come before it. They're diametrically opposed to stereotypes of Asians laboring or laundering clothes. This is especially true of Nick's cousin Astrid, a Princess Diana tribe type who at the start of the film purchases multi-million dollar earrings that she hides from her lower class husband. The thrill of beauty is amped up to a hundred here. The riot is fun drowning out the social commentary. That is totally true. I didn't think about like the launder, like laundering or laboring clothes of it all. And the fact that like, I don't know. Cause it, it's the, it's the same sort of thing of like, we're, we're making this makeover trope. That's a super accessible thing and we're applying it. But like, I didn't even think of the significance of that. Of, like, applying it to an Asian story. And, like, I didn't see the rom-com, or, like, the makeover part as, like, oh, this is just defaulting on a trope, because, like... There was... It had a specific... Goal. Yeah. There was a reason for it. It was to... For for Rachel it, it's as a for, character to kind of blend in and well, kind and of it's, it's kind of even, like a, a feeling to, of comfort sort yeah, of yeah for like, her to integrate with well, Nick's world it, it's about like finding her place in that world and figuring out what that looks like and kind of like making her and like you can, you can more, kind of argue that with like it was ask, like what if you dress the part you feel the part exactly and, like, yeah and like but also figuring out what that like dressing the part versus kind of like making her own way and like having it still reflect like her style and everything and like it's the same thing with like astrid and the earrings it's like it's nice to have like the clothes and the opulence of it all kind of be rooted in this all sort of like personal identity and personal sort of like confidence sort of thing like the the moment when Astrid like just says fuck it and puts on the earrings and then walks out on her husband, I was just like, this is great, because <laughs> it's that same sort of thing. Like it's this weird 
it, it's a thing that I didn't even really think about, but, like, I appreciate... Yes, the movie doesn't go there 100%, but, again, it, like, opens up the conversation. Yeah. Um, if Rachel does struggle with her identity, choose pacing leaves little room to investigate these nuances. Instead, Wu is tasked with delivering sentimental monologues about her background in a believable way. When Nick's mother, Eleanor, and her mother-in-law uh, try to cast doubt on Rachel... By way of a long-buried family secret, the drama and subsequent fallout feel manufactured. I didn't think it felt manufactured. The whole father reveal. Uh, I, For something like that, I would have expected something to kind of telegraph it early on. Because yeah. it was like, oh wow, this came... Because they do kind of reference... Like, oh, like, my father died. Died. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's enough of a telegraph almost to an extent. Like, you can argue that because, like, anything more would have... Because the whole Laid point on is... too much. The whole point is is that, like, you're identifying with Rachel over the course of the movie and then, like, this reveal completely blindsides her. So... And it does us because yeah, it's like, oh, exactly. shit. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I... Yes, it's a little manufactured, but also at the same time, knowing that it's, like, the basis of the sequel is also yeah. kind of a good thing. And, and like... Not, and not having read the book, there might be more to the yeah. whole reveal and more that hints at something like that. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Rachel's cat and mouse game to win Eleanor's respect is the most enjoyable thread of the film, though, with Rue, earnest and scrappy, finding her... Uh, compliment in yours reserved menace Me- menace. menace yeah um yeah it let's see in con- in stark contrast nick's father is absent for the entire movie and most of the men save for oliver the rainbow sheep of the family are barely present golding does his best with what he's given but nick is more of a symbol than a person i don't agree really he keeps a number of secrets from rachel but is never made to account for them um is it because we not obviously again not having read the books we can kind of get an idea of where the sequel will go i would like to see more for nick to do i i agree i still think like he this was rachel's story first and foremost so i feel like he was given a lot to do in that context most of the time in like a very female-centric romantic comedy you really only see the male character like through the eyes of the female character and through scenes with her and like having nick kind of go off and do his own things and be in his own scenes kind of independent like i still one of his best scenes was the one where he's with his uh, best friend out on the water yeah. just talking about yeah. and he's his friend is casting doubt on his yeah. relationship and like it's still that on its own is kind of refreshing in a way because like I said you don't necessarily you either get a rom-com where it's like both protagonists are kind of double like they, they're split the screen time in half or you get like the female focused thing and then all of the male characters are kind of just based off of her interactions with mm. them whereas this was like a little more of a split but still being Rachel's story first and foremost Let's see. Um, other archetypes offer more nuance. The sassy best friends, uh, played by rapper-actor Aquafina, whose comedic timing is so impeccable, her co-option of the AAVE frequently goes unmentioned. It is fortunate that her tiresome blast sense... Black uh, scent. Black scent. Uh, still played for laughs, also offers deeper commentary on the newly... Uh, moneyed Singaporeans and the exportation of black American cool. The Go House is huge, gilded affair 
uh, vaguely inspired by Donald to the victor belonging to the spoils drums bathroom. <laughs> I have a web extension that adds things I forgot. I had to disable all of those because one time I wrote an article of, that it mentioned his name and it auto-corrected to Trump and then nice. I got in trouble, so I don't have any of those. Nice. <laughs> um, everything about the goes from their Trumpian decor to... Paling's uh, mimicry serves to connote something undesirable standing in the stark contrast to the young's pristine ancient wealth and offering a tantalizing peek into new strains of Singaporean social stratification. It is That is kind of an interesting thing. And, like, as, as a white person, I'm not going to touch on this too much because it's obviously something I don't know about, but, like, the kind of, like, new money versus old money. You, anyone... There is... The only kind of correlation I can make is something like the great gatsby uh-huh it's like there's the old money and new money yeah like old as balls but like as just a modern classification yeah. of it of like yeah we're gonna eat chicken mcnuggets and dress like rappers and like inspire like yeah just all of those little plot like that those little details it does kind of start this discussion of like new and old money yeah yeah that is kind of fascinating i didn't even through this really... different cultural lens yeah exactly because i can't I'm sure there are corollaries to here in the States. Uh-huh. I just can't. It, it would, would be the equivalent of, like, the Kennedys versus, like, someone, Musk. some, well, or, like, the the people who just, like, I just won the lottery and I'm going to go buck wild. Like, it is, yeah. Ki- or, like, yeah, it's. Like, yeah, they're, they're definitely out there. Yeah. We just. But it, it is kind of, like, again, it's a discussion way, that this movie floats in a way very subtly. Them. Well, no. <laughs> don't, don't, I'm surprised it took, like, an hour in for you to be like, eat the rich. rich. Um, the most interesting moments in the film are also its most coy. Astrid suffers silently through her husband's affair with another woman, ignited because her wealth makes him insecure and she has a great line about uh, making him feel like a. M- yeah like i'm not gonna make you feel like a man because i can't make you feel like something you're not yeah yeah at the film's close she leaves him donning the earrings she once hid it speaks to the dismal state of asian representation that this display is meant to be a moment of triumph and not ridicule for all its carnival-like antics crazy rich asians is all too aware of its own spectacle See, like, I don't know. I, I'm i fine with the spectacle. To me, it never took me out of it. No. Because it is this, like, Cinderella sort of thing. Yeah. Of, like, I don't know. I, I didn't mind it. And, like I said, it's the escapism of it all, but still kind of touching on these social dynamics in a way that, like, any other movie would not have touched on. And I, one of the reviews said it, but from, like, Rachel's perspective, it is, like, the Cinderella story is like yeah. I'm going to a far off land, yeah, and see with my prince to his castle kind of thing, yeah. And it's I'm so out of my element, but I want to fit in, and I want to like feel comfortable, yeah, yeah. Like I love the moment at the wedding where she like sits next to the princess that like no one wants yeah. to talk to, and she like just on her own merit and on her own like just with her background they're able to strike up a conversation and kind of be friends and no no one else in that room would have been able to do that because they don't they don't have like the expertise and knowledge that she had yeah like there was something about that like 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 i've been saying kind of throughout there's this whole thing of like self-acceptance and self-worth that is this through line throughout the whole movie and it's obviously very specific for like asian and asian american viewers but just like even like any 
I, w I would assume that like most viewers who are watching this movie can still relate to that in one way or another. Yeah. Even if they know that this story is very uniquely that sort of story. Yes. Yeah. Like, I just appreciate this movie so much. Uh, I mean, we're probably, realistically, I don't think we'll get the sequel to like 21. 2020, 2020. Like, I don't know. It'll just be dependent on schedules yeah when everyone's able to get together but like i'm i'm happy that it's greenlit i'm happy that yeah. we're gonna get I'm happy that they have a plan in place i'm willing to wait for the sequel like yeah yeah i just like, i'm i'm excited to see like i know constance Wu. she already has fresh off the boat yeah Gemma chan she's gonna be in captain marvel next year yeah. i i i want to see um what's nick's okay yeah that henry, do we want to go into our last segment so you, if you're a new listener our last segment is we like to fan cast the cast of the movie we talk and about the and the director into comic book roles so like michelle yo is already covered because she's in guardians whether or not she's actually in guardians 3 will we'll see be remaining to be that's seen. up in the air everything with guardians is currently up in the air but like just in terms of the other cast like Gemma chan's in captain marvel so she's out but like so this being a warner brothers movie yeah i would like them to lock this cast down yeah and adapt um new superman um it's a relatively new property from dc by jin yulu liang who um he's he's written a whole lot of shit he did american or did he, do, he yeah he wrote american born chinese um a whole bunch of other comics he did some avatar stuff um so like adapt that comic and i think henry golding would be perfect <laughs> as uh keenan kong I, I can't that's his name but your, I your whiteness is like on full display right now but i i i've barely read new superman no i, I know so it's like i'm half remembering uh -huh. but i think it would be perfect yeah i can see him as new superman or just like night make him nightwing like you cowards yeah. like he's so like he he would totally fit the bill for nightwing and like that would be capitalizing off of this movie if you made a nightwing movie starring him like people would like be very drawn to that i feel like yeah and then like constance Wu. i've been saying this for years because everyone has been sleeping on how wonderful constance Wu is as an actress i have been wanting her to play lady shiva for like years now if i would love to see that happen in one way or the other like and if that doesn't happen i'll accept Kimio Hoshi, Dr. Light. Yeah, that would be cool. That I'm, would be... Yeah. I, like, I'm totally... I just want her in a DC movie. I've wanted her in one for years now. Like, I'm happy that we're getting uh, Gemma Chan as Minerva next year. Yeah. That's going to be great. And then, like, okay, so John Chu, you were trying to direct... You were trying to figure out what he would direct. I, we... I said Nightwing. Yeah. As one idea, um... He has such a weird, interesting filmography going from, like, the Justin Bieber documentaries to G.I. Joe Retaliation to this. To Gem and the Holograms. Like, he has yeah. such a diverse... But everything he has is so kinetic. It would be really interesting to see if he, like, what he would do with Nightwing. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, because, like, I don't know. There's just a lot of potential there, and I feel like it would be really interesting to see what he would do. Kind of seeing how he applies the sort of, like, choreography of it all to, like, a yeah. comic book movie. That would be really cool. 
Yeah, I, I haven't seen G.I. Joe Retaliation, but I remember he specifically wanted a fight on the side of a cliff. Nice. And that's what I remember is like they're all they're all hanging from ropes on the side of a mountain cliff and they're all swinging and the rock is there and nice. Snake Eyes is doing his thing. And, nice. Um, but yeah, that's I think that wraps up that segment. Yeah. In this episode. I think we're good. But yeah, go see this movie. If you've listened this far and you haven't seen it, go see this movie because you just wasted like an hour. You did. Otherwise. But yeah, this movie is an absolute delight. I am so happy that it exists and that it exists on this scale and I want it to just keep making money. And let us know what you thought of uh, the movie. Or of anything in this episode. Like the episode on iTunes. You can leave a review. Yeah. Um, tomato. Uh, tomato pod at gmail.com at tomato tomato um, pod on twitter on twitter um, that's pretty much all of our socials fuck facebook um, individually I'm at hey it's Jenna Lynn and I'm at the Chris Vito. you can find us all there follow us give us retweets and likes yes or not either way um, yeah I think that wraps it up Sorry, I just started yawning. It's still morning. Um, Yeah, that wraps it up. But until next time, keep watching movies. Thanks, that's great. Alright, bye.